You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hello, I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rask. And you're listening to the Australian Finance Podcast. A podcast where we talk about money, finance, investing, and all of that good stuff. We're helping you invest your time and money better one podcast episode at a time. Yes, so please subscribe if you like the series. And don't forget you can find us on social media. We're on all the platforms. Kate, where can people go? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Rask Australia. That's R-A-S-K Australia. Mm -hmm. And I'm Owen Rask on Twitter. Or Owen Rask AU on Instagram. Beware the imitators. People like to copy us. Without further ado, let's jump in to today's episode. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is wonderful to be back, Owen. Yeah, we're having a bit of fun today because we're talking about investing, which is one of the things that we love to talk about. But we've also got a special guest with us today. Danielle Akue, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, guys. Lovely to see you both and uh, lovely to meet you both just before FinFest a few weeks ago. Yeah, people may not know this, but I think Kate maybe interviewed you many years ago. Then you've been on our podcast a couple of times uh, and we'd never met in person. So I know, nothing like a pandemic. I think Kate and I chatted it's only two years ago. It might seem like it was a century ah. ago, but it was only two years ago. <laughs> Well, it does feel like a while because we've caught up so many times virtually, but it's so lovely to meet in person and um, go to dinner and then also to FinFest. So um, we're recording this via Zoom. So if there are a few glitches in the audio file, we apologize, but you should be able to watch the video online. Um, Danny, I think Kate's going to be the kind of MC, the master of ceremonies for today's episode. So I think I'm like you, I'm kind of sitting in the off to the wings here waiting for what she's got to, to say. But Kate, maybe I'll sit back. And you, you fire away. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the point of today's episode was to give our listeners a bit of an indication of some of the green flags of the, the good things we look at when researching companies and maybe some of those amber or red flags that might grab your attention when you're doing some research. So I thought it'd be great to chat to you both and get both of your perspectives as investors 
about some of the things that that you look at and maybe uh, any examples you have or maybe experiences where some of these have stood out to you. So I might just go through each of them and hear what you have to say, throw anything at me. And uh, I think it'll be really interesting for listeners to hear because when they pick a company that they're interested in, they've got at least a starting point to go about, okay, this is something that might be a positive sign or or this might be a, a amber flag that I need to investigate further. Mm-hmm. Cool. Sounds yeah. good. Great. All right. Well, I might kick it off with, should we just do five green, then five red? Just all <laughs> yeah. good, then all bad? Sure. <laughs> we're, probably, sure. we're probably fine. We'll do a green, but then I'll go, but this is the red. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Okay. We'll see. We'll see how we go. All right. So the first thing that stood out to me is a company with a a really good leadership and management team. Hmm. So maybe I can explain what it is, and then um, Danny can jump in. So what we're looking for is obviously management team CEOs um, and their executive team, but also the board of directors who oversee the management team to be aligned. So we're looking for. You know, do they think in the same way that we do as a shareholder? So that might be long term. You want them maybe to have goals and targets and you want them to meet those targets. And um, one of the things that we look for, at least majority of the time, is something called skin in the game. It's where they own shares in the companies that they run. Um, and this just is an idea that if a, a management team like a CEO owns shares in the company that he or she runs, they've got some money to lose if things go bad. So you want them to be a good caretaker, a good custodian of your investment dollars. And so that's kind of what we're looking for. I'm I'm sure Danny will dive into that in a bit more detail, but that kind of sets the scene for ideally what we try and find with these companies. Uh, Sorry, (laughs) I'm going to throw through a couple of spanners in that. In theory, I absolutely agree with you, um, Owen. I really do. Unfortunately, though, I think the system has become a little bit too defined in terms of remuneration and getting remunerated with share options and therefore management are working sometimes too much towards the short-term performance of the companies. And I think there's a couple of other examples that we need to when we discuss um, management crossing over with having shares in a company um, there are two great examples, actually three, uh, Tesla and Facebook, Meta and mm-hmm. News Corporation, where you have very large owner, um, CEOs, managers, directors, um, you know, a la Zuckerberg, uh, the Murdochs and Elon Musk that have a lot of control and that brings it with also some other issues for companies. So um, in some cases you get the the split listing of shares where some have more voting rights, a la News Corporation and um, the likes of uh, Meta. And everything's fine when everything's going well, but when it's not going well and you have the, the CEOs, founders, that have all the voting rights and you, the minority shareholders, even though they're very large companies, um, don't have as much of a say. So I think the thing about I've really been thinking long and hard about this, given how much markets have changed over the course of this year. And the thing that I, I think so hard for new investors and all investors as we, we grow and we learn is that we try and pl- put in place rules of what's good. And you've just given a really good example of people having skin in the game. Absolutely right. But like everything, it's always shades of grey. 
So we don't get a black or a white. And that's what I think that people sometimes forget when they're investing is that we want to make it as defined and prescriptive as possible. But sometimes common sense has to kick in a little bit. So I also thought your point was really interesting about the directors aligning with management. Um, I think that also potentially causes real problems um, when you get directors that don't question things uh, 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 and and they just basically toe the line. And there are examples mm-hmm. in the market of AMP and also um, Bing, not Bing Lee, um, Dick Smith that went mm-hmm. under. Okay, so uh, I think that um, these are some of the challenges that are being addressed more with that whole concept of governance and governance of companies and creating greater inclusion of uh, different groups Mm. of people, different ethnicities. And um, I am a great believer that um, the best way Um, And I can't remember, I could have gone completely off course here, Kate, so I apologise if I have. But the best way to get a feel of the management of the CEOs is to see them, see them at an AGM or listen to the conference calls and literally interpret the way that they respond to shareholders' questions. Are they defensive? Are they embracing of the questions? Um, and, and, And really view these people. Um, I suppose, um, in, in the wild, as opposed to being behind, behind all the, you know, just schmick interviews that sometimes go on. Mm. Yeah. And that's one of the other green flags I had on my list was open communication with shareholders. And I know a lot of uh, listeners, or especially I, when I got started, didn't realize that you can actually watch the annual general meeting um, online in most cases for these companies and you can get a feel for the management team and you can listen to now a lot of them go on podcasts and do interviews so you can listen to how they explain their company. Yeah and I think having been an institutional research analyst it is one of the most important things is to actually like the annual report report is good up to a point but it's a box ticking exercise and that's what people have to understand Um, The PR departments, the marketing departments, you know, present them in beautiful, glossy formats. And yes, the numbers are absolutely great. uh, But you really, really get a much better feel when obviously not everybody can go and interview the CFO or the CEO or whatever, like I used to do or the person that I used to interact with some of the large companies in Australia. But my best insights came in those interactions. So I learned very early on in the piece that, um, and it's a person who shall remain nameless because they're quite famous for everything going pear-shaped, but I sat there across the table having a conversation about one of their first startup companies. And I literally, I came away and I I really didn't understand a word of, a word of what had been said to me. And it, it takes sometimes um, a leap of faith in one's own um, confidence about knowledge and what you're listening to, to understand that uh, not all companies are always working in shareholders' best interests. Of course, mm. there are great companies that absolutely do that, and they're the ones we want to find and we want to own. But don't underestimate how much, if you're getting a feeling like you don't really resonate with what this person is saying, 
then potentially, potentially, it's a red flag. Except we're looking at green flags. So equally, if you go, yeah, this sounds really good, but maybe I'll just go and do a little bit more reading or a bit more listening to confirm so you don't get too much confirmation bias that this is a really good green flag for this company. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's the risk there of confirmation bias because a company can spin a good story, but it might sound really good, but it might not really be true or the whole Mm. picture. Mm. And that's what we find a lot, right, with our companies. They're professional salesmen and women the people that are at the top of the, the rung, if you like. And um, I I have an example of uh, a CEO in the US. His name is Todd McKinnon. He's from Okta, which is a company that does cybersecurity. Every investor call, um, he's either got me smitten or he's just brilliant. Um, I, I I come away from the call and he's honest about, I think the thing, the where I get comfort is, is he's very honest about the things that have gone bad and he's very honest about the things that have gone well. So he's not just, choosing to be to like to excuse the bad performance he owns it we could do better this is what went wrong um which is i i find that's really that forthright communication is really valuable for me as an investor and there are numerous instances in australia where i've come across companies where they do not do that they kind of just move the goalposts in in a way to explain poor performance rather than actually just say no it was poor performance so i think like one thing that I like to do with most of the companies, if I get the opportunity, is something called channel check. Uh, it's just like, let's try and go around management and see if we can find another way, like you said, Danny, to to just figure out actually what's happening. So don't just take their word for it. Like you said, it's one of the things as a new investor, it's very hard to have the conviction in what you know because you think you don't know a lot. Mm. But then it often comes back to very simple principles mm. like, you know, being are they open? Does mm. it make sense? Mm. Correct. It, yeah, you know, common it, sense. And that's 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 the hard one mm. because there's an expression, um, the thing about common sense is it's, it's not very common. <laughs> but I think that your point, Owen, is really important. It's a level of transparency and on, honesty and a mea culpa. Mm. What you don't want is hubris, huge mm. amounts of hubris. Um, and in the same way as an investor, you don't want to have a lot of hubris that, overconfidence like I can't go wrong here because companies ultimately are risk managers Mm. in everything they do in the same way as investors we should be risk managers and I think that example you gave of Okta is excellent and one of the ways that I might cross-check that is you go back and you look at the financial performance and um, not necessarily just the share price performance, because that'll only go so far in terms of giving you indications. But you actually look at how the company's uh, numbers, finances have performed over the years, because that, to a certain degree, it's much harder with newer companies. I'm I'm not across Okta, um, but I was mm. a holder in um, a similar company, CrowdStrike. I don't own it at the moment, but that's more a macro thesis than a, a micro thesis. Um, but I do know that um, that having recently listed, I think from 2018 or 2019, it might have been, um, they have consistently beat their earnings. They have consistently put the runs on the board. And equally, I find listening to their CEO very interesting. So if we were looking for green ticks, there's a green tick about mm-hmm. an Octa may be the same. So then the reason you have to ask yourself when you're looking at the company, 
Well, they're ticking great green, you know, boxes here. Like the, the management uh, CEO is open, he's honest, he owns the, you know, the mistakes, etc. Uh, equally, the numbers are looking good. And then you might look at the share price and you go, well, why isn't it performing? What's wrong here? What am I missing? And in the current environment, it could be as simple as the cycle has turned and we're looking at mm. macroeconomic factors. And that's the other hard thing sometimes for newer investors to differentiate when we're, we're doing the stock picking and the stocks look really good, but it becomes a question of, well, maybe this is, it's not making enough cash flow at this point in the stock's development, or maybe the valuation is a bit stretched as interest rates going up. So that's just to give you a, a, a comparison of how you would tee off what looks like ticking lots of great boxes, but then you go to the next box, it's like, well, we, the share price performed really well and then suddenly it's come under pressure. But that's maybe due to something else. Mm. I agree. And that's where, for me, it's about having multiple, like if you if you do, there are limitations to this checklist, these flags, <laughs> analogies, but if you do have multiple, you can then weigh it up and you can say, well, there were some good bits, there are some bad bits. So now yeah. what do I think? And I think a lot of people get... Uh, paralysis by analysis at that stage, but I think that's the that's the rigor of investing as well as you, as you alluded to. So, um, yeah, I like it. Kate, what's next? Yeah, you guys remind me of my law professors. Whenever I ask a question in class, they just say it depends, and then write <laughs> off a whole list of factors on either side because there's never a straight answer to anything. Well, that's, but that's investing. Yeah. Uh, the next thing I had was looking more at the, about the backbone of the company, so the employees and whether the employees are having positive experiences working for the company, whether there's diversity, uh, what are the retention rates? Uh, what would you look at there, Owen? Uh, me? Um, yeah, sure. So I can give you an example of this because I, I think that people tend to think that every place in the world has to look like Google where you get like fresh fruit and sushi when you rock up and there's beanbags. Um, but I'll give you an example in Australia of a company called Flight Center, which um, is the the biggest flight um, and travel agent in Australia, but also it's got a big presence overseas. And if you speak to anyone who's ever worked at Flight Center, probably one of the things that you'll realize is that the culture is very sales focused. It's very like, who's the best performer this month? And many businesses are like this, frankly. And people often think, well, that's not a good place to work. It's very like, it's almost, it's not masculine, but it's almost like alpha male type who rises to the top. And a lot of people would think that that's not a good culture. But if you think about what the business does, it sells airfares and it sells hotels and packages and things like that. So the person that is the best at selling probably should be rewarded. And that's kind of the culture that they have to foster. And that rubs some investors the wrong way because they're like, well, all the ratings on Seek and Glassdoor and everywhere doesn't sound so good, uh, but it works for that type of business. And they're not doing anything wrong by having that culture. It's just, it is what it is. And they have award ceremonies where they award the best salesperson some awards. Um, whereas other cultures, say like banks, to Danny's point before about risk management, that is the ultimate in risk management. You want, to be honest, you want a lot of bureaucrats in a business like that because you want things to be safe and secure. So for me, I think one thing that if I just tie this back to what a lot, of, where a lot of investors go wrong, particularly new investors, is they speak to one employee and I think that that one employee's views of the company are representative of the whole company and whether or not it's a good investment. And I think that's a mistake. 
because everyone has their own experiences with a company and some people, even at the best companies, will have bad experiences. So you have to just be, I guess, a bit diligent and make sure you get multiple perspectives. And again, you fact check your your resources, I guess. Mm, mm. I love I love the Google example. Apparently, they were drawing all those nice benefits because they're cost cutting. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. I was <laughs> listening the other day. To have a sushi chef. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think sometimes it's it's maybe with smaller companies you can actually ask people what it's like to work at the company, but sometimes it's quite hard to do. I used an example in my first book of um, uh, CSL and their employment policy and the diversity of workforce that they had. And they kind of drilled down into that because with larger companies, um, I think with any company, I don't know, um, apart from walking into a flight centre store and saying, hey, do you like your job? (laughs) I'm not sure how you always interview somebody who works at a company. Uh, But um, I do think those conference calls are, again, quite good. Um, You want to make sure that there is – I do think the diversity in the boards and the management and the workforces is really important um, because I do think we continue to have possibly issues um, in Australia, more so Mm. than I think you get in the UK and the US. And I feel I can speak with some authority having worked at a, a British bank and um, they had 50% of our desk were women, which is unconceivable in Australia on a institutional sales desk. Um, so I think you've just got to have flags watching out for a bullying culture or, a, you know, um, I agree totally, own about the sales thing. You see it with real estate agents. Um, they have their awards. Who's the best real estate agent? I mean, they're very sales orientated. Um, for us in institutional broking, ours was obviously you, you got your nice big cookie at the end of the year, which was your bonus, which was directly related to how much commission you've written. Uh, but, um, and I also agree, not everybody is going to have a great experience at a company. Um, but, um, it really probably is a case of just, uh, keeping your eyes and ears open. Um, if it's retail stores, you know, you can ask the staff what it's like to work at JB Hi-Fi or Harvey Norman, you know, is Jerry, Jerry Harvey the bully that he's meant to be? (laughs) 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 But, um, apparently I should say, um, but, um, yeah, I, I use CSL in my book as a great example Mm. of how they go into quite some depth about the diversity of their workforce and the strengths of um, having a lot of women and a lot of women scientists, which I Mm. think is really important. And the other thing for people to remember too, businesses are very mix and match. So you want the best scientists in a biotech company. You want the best engineers in a Tesla, Mm. Uh, but you don't want an engineer necessarily sitting in a sales company, as you said, you Mm. know, yeah. Yeah, so having to look at the what company you're actually looking at when it comes to what employees are there and what culture is there uh, first. So using that common sense check again. Mm. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that uncommon sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next thing I have on my list is the company having an internal focus on the long-term future of the company and not just focusing on short-term wins. I don't know if you have anything to share on that one, Daddy. Yeah, this is really important. I've actually just been uh, <clears throat> reminded yet again um, that one of the criticisms 
if it could work for Australia, but let's let's just thrash it out a little bit. So companies need to generate cash flow and they need to invest for the future. And the problem is during the good times is that um, companies, because management sometimes get remunerated, as we touched on in the first point, um, will drive short-term performance and they will reward shareholders, okay, with large chunks of cash. So you're seeing it in the resources sector, you're seeing it in the coal companies at the moment. Mm. And I think the problem and one of the problems that the Fed and central banks want to disincentivize is just constantly rewarding the shareholders with these extreme payouts, with the big buybacks. And obviously, if you're an Apple or a Google or even, you know, up until recently, uh, Facebook was generating massive amounts of cash. That's all now going down the, the dystopian a la Claude Walker, metaverse. <laughs> but the point is, is good companies, really good companies, CSLs, the great, um, you know, all good companies need to invest for the future. And they're the ones that can grow over time. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that because when we're in the peak frenzy of a cycle, a la coal companies, a la energy companies at the moment where let's say we're transitioning, right, to decarbonisation. So by definition, they those companies have been starved of cash, so their resources become more valuable and you see these big price spikes, et cetera, as well as with the Ukraine war. But the point is, shouldn't those companies maybe be thinking about the future, where they should invest their money? And I've used that as an example, but it would apply everywhere. So in terms of spotting good long-term growers, they need to invest for the future because they need to get to create, which will come to those great moats, those great competitive advantages. They need to invest to become the lowest cost at whatever they do. They need to invest to make sure they're not disrupted going forward. And I think the, the problem for a lot of companies and a lot of our banks were a little fat like this. They just kept on saying we're riding the property cycle. We'll pay out these lovely, lovely high payout ratios. Meanwhile, the fintechs, right, came around the back door and said, hold on, you guys are right for disruption. And that's even though they've taken a step back at the moment, that trend is probably still in place. Mm. So I would say investing is really important. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. I just say the bottom line is companies need to invest for the future. You do not want, but equally, they can't go completely AWOL like Zuckerberg's going, where if you would attract revenue versus cost, so you're suddenly seeing the the cost crossing the revenue line and cash flows are going to go backwards. And that's why you see investors freaking out. I was wondering where you would go to find this information if you were trying to have a look for this. Oh, it'll be in um, usually in the annual reports and the balance sheets. They will have research and development. Mm. I'll probably just um, just tuck on a few little things here. Danny's example of Meta slash Facebook is really good because Mark Zuckerberg is investing about ten to twelve billion dollars a year at a time when there's no return on that money. So it's very if you had like a spectrum, that's very like, we don't know what this is going to do, but we're investing for the future and investors can't really wrap their head around it because probably the company hasn't wrapped their head around it either. And then you've got a company, like if we take one step back from that, you might get a company like Zero, 
which is the accounting software. I don't own shares, full disclosure. That company hasn't been profitable. Another example mm. might be Amazon, which is a mm. company that has never truly been profitable, yet has grown really fast. Mm. And those ones where people can see they are investing for the future, but they're investing a lot, probably a lot more than people would be comfortable. Maybe we come back a little bit from that and we've got something like Visa or MasterCard. And these companies are incredible payments companies. And they are investing for the future too, but they also can be profitable at the same mm. time. Mm. And then you keep coming another step back and you've got companies that pay mostly dividends, as Danny said, high payout ratios. That's just the how much dividends do they pay compared to their profit. And those companies maybe are under-investing. So again, we see that, Kate, you'll love this. It depends, <laughs> right? Like it depends. Some companies are in a position where they should be investing more and some should maybe be investing less. Um, there's a company from South America called uh, Mercado Libre. Mm. This is a company that's like the Amazon of South America. It's how mm. it's described, but it's kind of like a Amazon meets PayPal kind of business. And um, that business to kind of like augment the focus of the team only has its incentives for its employees over five years. So you have to be there five years in order to get shares or to get a cash bonus. And that's important because what it means is that if you do something today, you're not going to be rewarded for if, if it's good until five years. So it's got to be good in five years still. And you got to still be there. Um, it's not perfect. There's no kind of like one size fits all. But I think that's a good example of trying to encourage everyone to think long term. Mm. Can I, sorry, Kate, can I just add a little bit just on, because um, Owen's exactly right, there's, there's there's different shades yet again of that investment. The key question you've got to ask yourself, right, yes, companies like Zero and Amazon investing for the future and they've decided that they wouldn't, you know, Amazon was self-funding its billion-dollar um, warehouses and in the same way that Tesla is going to self-fund its gigafactories. Uh, but some companies have to use debt, okay? This is really, really important in this cycle that you have to appreciate um, whether the companies are self-funding from cash flow, which mm -hmm. Meta is trying to do, um, or whether or not it's coming from debt because debt in an interest rising interest rate and environment, and I think I mentioned this to you, Owen, at, at the dinner, is that a lot of people have, I was really heavily bashed around the head when I was an, an analyst and learning about all of this. It goes back to the basics. It goes back to how much cash flow is coming out of the company, how much debt they have, and what their interest cover is, and then how much is left over to invest for the future. So if you were to pick potentially a sweet spot, not in a zero interest rate environment, but in a current interest rate environment, you want those companies that have sufficient cash flow that are not overly indebted that can still invest for the future. And one of the problems with the technology sector or the biotechs is that, you know, um, or the software companies, the whole argument, which I had to learn about with my second book, is that you just grow at any cost. And you can do that when the cost of capital, so you can borrow money at really low rates, but you can't do it when interest rates are 5%. So mm. that's the only caveat I would say that, um, you know, it's 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 part of the, um, you've seen the compression in the valuations on the likes of Amazon and Zero, 
part of that was because the companies, um, yes, they've got huge cash flows, but they're still pouring a lot of money in. And then, of course, there's cyclical factors. So sorry, there's the shades of shades of grey again. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good thing to keep in mind. And the final thing I had on my green flag list was whether the company is in a growing industry. Mm. Mm. Now, isn't that an interesting question? Yes. What is a growing interest? What is a growing industry at the moment? Do you want to have a have a stab at that one, Owen, before I have a go yeah, at it? <laughs> sure. So, I guess it's pretty hard. Like a lot of people would define these differently, and I think it comes back to time horizon. So, if you think of a company in terms of ten years, maybe you can I think of some big picture things. Like maybe in the last ten years, we had cloud computing, so companies doing more you know, remotely just access through a browser. Um, and then we had, you know, things like social media, probably the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and going back a bit further, we had desktop computing. Uh, and this was a big thing when IBM was making chips and um, Microsoft was making Windows. And then things, you know, tend to evolve over time. But if you take a shorter term uh, lens, um, I think you get more into, as Danny was saying, the cyclical nature of industries. So what you might see there is like coal, for example. Um, we obviously need more energy in the world, but coal prices have gone very high. And so you would say, if you just looked at the last year or two, that coal is a growing industry. But if you zoom out and you look over 10 years, maybe you think, well, decarbonization, to Dane's point again, it's not a growing industry. So what I personally, what I try and find is industries that will still be here in 10 years. And I'm pretty confident that they'll be bigger. I don't know if, how big, but they'll be bigger. Um, so things like cybersecurity, cloud computing, yet again, um, things like that, I tend to think I have pretty strong conviction that they'll still be here. And there's already revenues here today. And the way I measure those is I basically just look at the biggest players in the industry and what are they saying? You can get industry reports from Gartner, Ibis, uh, even Statista. But oftentimes, some of these industry reports are a little bit massaged i would say so just be careful when you look on the when you google how big is the uh, i don't know gaming industry and there's a report it could just they all say they're growing and they can't mm. all be growing so like as fast as they say so just be a little bit careful that's probably what i'd say mm. no i agree you've made some really good points there uh there's there's it's just important to differentiate um between um if you want to do your buckets the bucket approach cyclical companies. So think building materials companies, anything that is um, uh, probably related to economic growth. Um, so the banking sector, potentially um, finance stocks, then you've got uh, your secular growers, um, which I mentioned, really important. You've got big themes, decarbonization, cybersecurity, um, cloud, um, all of those are growing at, at, at varying degrees. And then you've got kind of the other ones, if you want to create an, another bucket, which is um, defensive quality stocks. So you've got really good secular trends um, in the likes of healthcare and pharmaceuticals or biotechs, quality big biotechs I'm talking about. I'm not going down the small end of the spectrum because they're more speculative. And they're going to go through the cycle. So some of these are related to demographics, growing populations, right? And um, some of them are directly related to interest rates and short-termism. And some of them are long-term trends as society evolves. And as per usual, um, you know, you can, you can still pick a great cyclical company 
within a cyclical sector. Um, but obviously, the macro environment will just play a little bit more on that um, in the short term or the medium term. But understanding them is really important when the cycle turns. Um, equally, it's looking at those really good companies in, in the secular markets as well um, mm. is important. I mean, I think there's the scope to invest across all of those different sectors. One one thing that came out overnight that's worth highlighting, and it's been written up um, in both Livewire and um, and also in um, FN Arena's newsletter, is a UBS report just talking about why Australia potentially is going to hit a sweet spot in the next 10 years, which I think is a great example for people. And the reason is, is that Australia is very pro-immigration, okay? So you've got quite um, a... A, um, a xenophobic is a bit of a strong word, but in other economies, um, both Democrats and Republicans in the US are really pulling back on immigration. So you rely on your natural population growth in that case. Um, if you look at China, they've got aging populations. Um, lots of Asia actually has that as well. So um, Australia is one of the sweet spots because we're growing our population and that underpins economic activity. Yeah, we saw that. Um, you could probably say for the last twenty or thirty years, correct? Um, in the US, like a lot of those tech companies are built correct. on the back of you know immigrants or people that are super talented, wanting to go to the US and work for these businesses. So, yeah, that's. Um, I often, Danny, I often this is an aside. I often think about what makes stock markets so great, and it's actually because people like really brilliant people come together and they solve problems and if you think mm. about that to think that they only come from one country is um i think that's like a mistake so um from the business perspective i think that's that's absolutely one of those trends and good on you for highlighting that that sweet spot in australia too like we're we've got a de we're developed market good, good property rights and we're a great place to live so yeah, bring it on. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and just sorry, Kate, I'll make it really quick because I know we're over time precious, but it's a really good example on that diversity of um employees. Again, if you listen to um some of the um uh companies in the US, um you'll hear a lot of Indian CEOs, you'll hear mm -hmm. Chinese CEOs. Um and uh it's it's interesting because because the the you know, it, it is more diverse. And if you look at, I didn't actually watch this time, um, the, the Tesla um, AI day, and when he gets his engineers up on that space, you can just see how many have really come from across the globe. And mm. uh, it is about getting the best people in the world. Mm. So we've had a look at some of the green flags that we'll look at when we're investing in companies and maybe some of the things you're mindful of. But now I think it's important that we have a look at some of those maybe amber or red flags that might cause you to pause and do some further research when you see them when you're researching companies. So the first thing I had on my list for this is high staff turnover, especially key roles like the CEO or the CFO. Um, AMP. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, I was going to say, um, well, there's a few, there's, uh, be real quick with this, but obviously, if you have a lot of staff turnover, then you know how difficult it can be and costly it can be for a company to um, get things done, because it takes a month, you know, for anyone to feel comfortable in their role and to start producing. Oftentimes, if they're a bit more senior, they can adapt pretty quick. But, um, you know, I think that's that's a serious problem. And big companies uh, have the same problems as small companies have. So, they need to retain good people. 
Um, there's a company which uh, I previously recommended for our RAS services, and um, it's gone on a one-way ticket down, which is a company called EML Payments. Oh. And that has consistently had between, <laughs> Danny's got her hands over her face, that's had consistently between, say, 16%. And I think the highest reading was around about 26% employee turnover. So if you think you've got 500 employees, you know, 100 of them or more are walking out the door every year. And that's a lot, you know, that's a lot of people to place. It's a lot of people, a lot of systems to be retrained. Like it's just a big issue. So obviously if that happens, um, the, the questions has to be have to be asked further up. Um, and then if the CEOs and CFOs, as you said, Kate, are leaving or even the directors, that's pretty telling too. Mm. Telling in lots of different ways. Um, I do know that Babcor had some problems yeah. and um, they got rid of their CEO and uh, there was some, a conflict there as well. It's it's usually a um, it's it's usually an indication. It doesn't mean that the person that's leaving was right or wrong, but um, Owen is right in saying it's it is a, what Kate as you wanted a red flag that something that is is not quite right. Um, in the companies, you want CEOs um, that that are happy to stay on for a prolonged period and happy to keep their staff. But equally so, it's not always the end of the world when somebody leaves. And it's really important you find companies that are good at um, um, transitioning to new management, because mm. inevitably not everyone's going to stay forever and nor do you want them to stay forever. So succession planning is really important and um, equally accepting uh, companies that have, I did touch on it before, but I want to touch on it again, major shareholders, CEOs, owners, um, you know, it comes families. That comes with a set of um, risks in terms of, um, you know, succession planning, what happens to them or, you know, if they get run over by a bus, heaven forbid, or something like that. But it's something that you have to think of because you want a depth of management, you want a weight of management. The really important thing for people to understand that great generals, great generals don't do everything, okay? Great generals delegate and they're happy to delegate and they're happy to have great managers underneath them, okay, who can take companies forward. They're like the umbrella. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, just watch out for autocrats and kind of dict dictatorish type of CEOs because it's not always the best working environment. Mm. Yeah, and Danny, let's say a CEO or chairperson of a company you'd invested in departed suddenly, what questions would you be asking to be more comfortable continuing to invest in that company? I think the most important thing, and it comes, I think you've got a point coming up about selling shares. It really depends because people get sick or something happens in a family. Um, so you really need to differentiate um, if it really is a personal reason that they've had to leave or whether or not it's a sign of dissension. And a sign of dissension or a disagreement could be a sign that the business is not going well somewhere along the way. And we get into that blame game situation um, where multiple, um, you know, CEOs are blamed. I mean, you, you just constantly seen it with AMP. It's, it's, you know, poor company has been a sinking ship for years. 
um, and everybody that comes in tries to stick another Band-Aid over it, but it just keeps on, yeah. Um, and it's very hard once you get, let, let's take Magellan because Magellan's quite a good example um, in terms of obviously Hamish Douglas was such a big figure. The founders were such big figures. They were very strong personalities. They really, Hamish had a, um, you know, almost a glow and aura uh, about him. He had contacts with Jalen Yellen, et cetera, et cetera. But when the tide turned, so the markets turned and then he had some own issues and suddenly it's like, whoa, you got to go, mate. And obviously I can't imagine what it's like working inside of that company when you have all your literally dirty laundry being you know, put out in the media how you feel about that when you work there. And I think that's sometimes um, quite hard for companies to right the ship again. That's that's the challenge. How do you as an employee feel if everybody's been running for the door, including, let's say, the clients? Um, so um, when you do see these red flags and it is dissension in the ranks, it usually means um, – that something is 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 structurally wrong with the company and turnarounds. I don't know what you think, Owen, but I think it's really important for people to understand that you know turnarounds sometimes really don't turn around. Lend lease has been turning around for how many years? Sure. So <clears throat> I don't know because it, it is correlated to the red flag. Like you know the glory days of lend lease when was when I was an analyst years and years ago. Um, with a guy called Stuart Hornery and Dusseldorf was in there. And um, even in the noughties, it was it was a better potentially company company that, that you know, they're continuing to struggle in turning it around. Mm. I would say so. We've got uh, obviously high staff turnover. And then the second point is uh, selling of directors and that type of stuff. Uh, I wouldn't know, Danny, like to your point about Magellan, I, I, could, I don't know how you could do that. Like if you're a senior member who really – uh, values their career. I don't know how you can manage that, but obviously they, they're trying to, and to their credit, the team there are trying to do that. But um, I, I would say with the selling, a lot of people treat director selling as a massive red flag. Mm. And I think it's amber, mm. like it's orange, because at the end of the day, like you said, people can get sick. People um, that are f- retire, it's, these mm. are just natural things that happen. Mm. Um, some of the best things to be mindful of when you look at study this is actually, well, first of all, what do they say? What are the reasons that they say? And then also, have they articulated that they're going to sell? I've seen numerous instances where mm. the chairs um, have said, you know what, I'm going to focus on philanthropic issues. I'm going to donate my money. I'm slowly retiring, whatever the case may be. And they say, I'm going to commit to selling 10% of my holding for the next 10 years. And that's well documented that people don't have to be spooked by that. I think there are some um, instances, particularly I think what we're seeing, what we may see and what we have seen from some of the companies in the lithium sector is that <laughs> um, the share prices are riding high and those companies are extremely risky. And some of the CEOs and um, directors and you know senior leaders in those businesses are now selling. And those are probably the types of instances where I would but that would raise more than a few eyebrows from time to time. I'd be thinking, wow, this is something going on here. Like, why are these people selling? Um, you know, and, and a final point that I'll add is um, there's a guy from a company called WiseTech Global, which does software for logistics. His name is Richard White. He owns so much of the company. 
He's got so much on the line. If he sells even $50 million worth of shares, he still has so much more in the company mm. that people would be like, well, he's getting out now. And you think, well, he's got hundreds of millions of dollars worth. He's not getting out now like if he was. Um, and so I think just take it in context. And we saw that with Promedicus to another company that I own. They sold all the way up and the share prices kept going up. So they're, they're the ones that ultimately lost from that. So um, shades of grey, don't like to see it necessarily. Always, you know, it's good to see CEOs buying shares, but there are many reasons they sell. Mm. And you're totally right. Jeff Bezos, he always used to yeah. sell. He's, he's, he's made it very obvious. I sell for Blue Origin every year. Uh, and you're absolutely right. You know, Richard Wise, um, the Technology One founder, and I think some of the directors, they sell every year. And when you think about it logically, if you were them, right? So your <clears throat> exposure is to a company, everything. All your wealth is in there. Your day job is in there. It's not rocket science and nor is it unreasonable for those people to diversify their risk and take some money out, apart from the fact that, you know, <clears throat> they maybe want to do something. Um, I think the uh, Dicker Data guy as yeah. well has done it. Like, you know, you, you can't expect them to go to their grave um, and not possibly enjoy the fruits of all their hard work and have a holiday house or a boat or by whatever. And I think that um, people are sometimes really unrealistic um, and probably take two – it works either way. You, the, the lithium example is brilliant, really, really good because <clears throat> there's probably a lot of hot air in there at the moment. And mm. let's face it, a lot of those share prices go up a lot, but they haven't done anything yet. Um, so some of them never actually ever want to go to production, um, gold miners, a lot of miners, well, they don't want to go to production because that's actually when all the problems start. So you actually want to ride the cycle when all the hype's in there and then get out. So mm. I agree totally. They're the ones you've really got to watch out. But for the bigger companies, people need money and, um, it's not unreasonable to, um, if they're transparent and honest about it and open about it. Um, that, um, you know, they do some selling. And sometimes yeah. the market takes fright and that's a buying opportunity for a great mm. company. Mm. <laughs> go, go and check the uh, LinkedIn profiles a few months after they step down and see what they do because that's um, that's a little trick that I've learned, particularly with smaller companies. They say, I'm retiring, but then two months later, they're appointed somewhere else. And maybe there's nothing in that, but you can just get a sense of did they say what, did they do what they said they were going to do? So um, just a little trick there using LinkedIn. Awesome. The next thing I have on my list is poor investor and media communications. And maybe that's how a company responds to an article about them or how they answer questions from investors at AGMs. I'm not sure if you've got some points to share there, Danny. Uh, well, I think Medibank is, um, Medibank Private's probably a really good example, um, how they've kind of handled the hack recently. Um, they weren't on top of it um, and mm. uh, they weren't possibly as open as upfront as they should have been. Um, <clears throat> you really need to watch out for um, uh, companies that constantly miss earnings estimates, downgrades, and then they come up with little furphy excuses as to why it happened, like the dog ate the homework. Um, so I think that... Um, to give you an example, okay, this is, you know, quite a personal one. I was um, uh, an owner of Perpetual Shares in 2007 and I was um, very anti the guns, pulp mill. And I went to the AGM and started asking 
the chairperson, the chairman, some questions, and they basically shut me down and almost threw me out of the AGM. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I was beautifully dressed in a lovely suit and I was being perfectly polite. Um, the end of the story is, A, at that AGM, I discovered that they owned CDOs, uh, and we know how that story ended. The other story was is that guns actually was a, I'm going to use the expression that I used in broking, a pile of poo, and the model wasn't sustainable, and yet the company, for some reason, was dogged, doggedly sticking with it and wouldn't actually address any of the issues. So there's some really big flags when management um you know, kind of give wishy-washy answers. Uh, they shut down investors at an AGM. Okay, there's some pain in the rear of people that just go on and on and on. Um, but there are a couple of examples of, of you know, where, you know, if, if something happens like a big cyber attack, you know, these companies really need to be on the front foot and, and honest and, and out there. And therefore, you have to question what is so wrong with their management systems that they couldn't be up front with the investors straight away? And I think this is one area that everybody needs to be aware of going forward. It's no coincidence, given what's going on with geopolitics out of Russia and China, that Australia is being heavily targeted on the cyber front at the moment. Mm. Yeah, um, that's a really good example, Danny, with Medibank. Um you know, it's kind of like a leaky ship. This thing's just slowly got worse and worse and worse. Um, I, yeah, I, I guess the thing that really grinds my gears as someone who kind of champions small investors is that a lot of companies and even fund managers, you mentioned uh, Perpetual there, but just a lot of industry kind of disregards smaller investors to the point of where they think, they don't even need to answer their questions. So sometimes, yeah, <laughs> there's some drivel at the AGM. Some people get up and they make a speech and there's really no question. It's more a statement. And you're like, okay, just sit down. Um, but there are times when there are perfectly innocent and good questions where they should be answered and they're kind of the directors take it on notice or do things like this. And you just think, well, no, they're legitimate questions, particularly around incentives. I think what you find is that the companies that are probably worse with this is just my belief. The companies that are probably worse with their communication are probably the ones that also have poor incentive structures throughout the organization or a lack of independent directors on the board. You mentioned earlier on, Danny, at the very top of the show that it's good to have some sort of separation between the board and the management team. I fully agree. So, yeah, I mean, there are many instances of this happening on the ASX, but just remember that you are a shareholder. And if you don't understand it, maybe you shouldn't be invested. But if they don't answer your question, again, maybe you shouldn't mm. be invested. Um, you know, it's pretty hard to get access to CEOs, but at least listen to the calls and tune in for webinars and, and that type of thing. I find it fascinating watching some of the AGMs. They know it's being recorded in video and still sometimes they're rolling their eyes when questions are asked. And mm. like, you know, you're public. It's interesting to see their responses sometimes. Mm. Oh, yeah. that, that goes back to that hubris, Kate, the arrogance. Mm. And mm. I think I think that um, you know you, you companies um, that appreciate that the smaller shareholders, the minority shareholders, not just the institutional shareholders play a big part is important. The small shareholders shouldn't dictate things, but nor should they be 
completely dished as well. And as, as you said, Owen, you probably have been to more of the smaller company AGMs or listened, but it's really important. Like I do know I went to the WiseTech AGM when they had all those problems, um, the shorter was around. Mm. And uh, which turned out, you know, great buying opportunity. And um, the board and Richard White were so open, so transparent, so happy to chat. In fact, I walked up to Richard after the AGM and had a chat with him and he was totally relaxed. So mm. there's a really good example. Mm. Yeah. All right. The second last thing I have on my red flag list, and you've mentioned companies missing earnings a few times in this episode, Danny, is a company with worsening financials. And I was wondering if you could mention some of the things that at a high level you would look at as a red flag here. Yeah, well, um, you've just, yeah, you'll start to, let's just say, for example, you um, don't understand why a share price is um, going down because usually the market's pretty smart and it'll pick up these things. Um, sometimes a little bit before investors do. Uh, but apart from if you want to sit down and tear the balance sheet apart and the cash flow statements apart, um, you can just look at some of the ratios in terms of the interest cover or the rate of revenue growth or the rate of uh, where margins are going because most of these are usually defined in the financial statements. I don't know how much your listeners like to drill down to that level, um, but the key things if you're listening on a, a, an earnings call that you want to look for is ongoing revenue growth, margins not coming under pressure. That's one of the most important ones. It's kind of the margins of the canary in the coal mine when things are going to go wrong. So you want to see, that's why there's a lot of hype around Tesla. What's happening to their margins? X, the green credits. Are they going up? Are they going down? Um, the same with really most companies. This reporting season, um, as you two are really aware, there's been uh, lots of margin compression from cost, in, cost imposts from inflation. Mm. So investors will be looking for that to turn around. And equally, um, then you want to probably um, look at, I think, dividend growth is one of the best, best signs. If a company can grow its cash dividends over time, um, that is a really strong indication that the revenue line is working, the cost lines are working, and the cash is coming through to the investors. So I'm not talking about a fat cat mature company that, you know, is more like an annuity. I'm talking about companies that are going through that process of growing their revenues, getting their costs down, keeping them under the control, investing for the future. And then it pops out the sausage machine at the end, which is they're growing their dividend. Because you as an investor, particularly in a rising interest rate world, you want capital gain, but you want income to grow with it. So that would be some of the ones that I would absolutely look for. Mm. I think you touched on a few really interesting things there, Danny. And one of the things, particularly if we just timestamp this conversation a little bit, um, at this point in time, obviously the big picture for a lot of people is, are you making a profit? Because if we mm. are in a period where there's 
uncertainty and inflation, there's higher interest rates. Can you make a profit? And like some of the things that I, we now value investor course on RASC. Um, some of the things that I talk about are things like just monitoring where the, the capital is coming from. So are they slowly taking on debt? So um, there have been instances over the past 10 years where there's been really low interest rates and companies have thought, well, what we could do is we could take on debt and use that to grow our business and then use our profits to pay dividends, um, which is fine. But then what's the next step? Like, how do you manage that going for, on a going forward basis? So I'd be looking at right now, is the company profitable uh, and does it have a plan to make itself profitable? They obviously doesn't happen overnight. Is it getting better or worse from a debt perspective right now? Um, and that can be shown on the balance sheet, but we can also see it on the profit statement where profit and loss, where you see interest paid or like net interest. Um, that's another thing. And to your point, Danny, about sales, I couldn't agree more that sales is still important. You know, it seems like such a simple thing to look at like the revenue or how many widgets the company is selling. But those are what's important because over the long term, if you have a growing business, it doesn't solve all the problems, but at least it helps. If your business is growing, you, typically you're in a stronger bargaining position with its suppliers and and those types of things. So those are just some of the things I'm I'm looking for. Um, and I mean, we could go on for days, but some really simple things. Is it growing? Is it profitable? And how much debt does it have, basically? Debt, debt is so important. People don't understand because we haven't had a um, um, uh, any kind of busts lately. Yeah. And um, that will have happen as the credit cycle evolves. Yeah, I think and, so too. Yeah. And, you know, I... Um, I, I, I'll just give a really quick example. When I was an analyst for a company called Goodman Field Awati, so this is the father of the CEO mm. or starter of Goodman Group, and it was a big um, baking company, so he used to make all the breads, blah, blah, and they wanted to take over a company called Ranks Hovis McDougall in the UK. Anyway, I sat all afternoon combining the P&Ls and the balance sheets, and I did it, must have done three times, and eventually I called in a really top-rated analyst. His name was actually Owen Evans, and that's why uh, I get confused sometimes between Evan Lucas and Owen because I had a, a mate called Owen Evans. <laughs> and I go, Oki, his name was, and shout-out to Oki if you ever listen to these because um, he was the most amazing number cruncher I've ever seen. I go, check my numbers because I said, that, I said, this company can't do this. Anyway. I, I got asked by the Asian Wall Street Journal. Um, I said, no, it'd be geared to the eyeballs. Guess what mm. happened? They couldn't, the, the, the acquisition never happened. It was, it was a flight of fancy during a bull market from the managing director and some of the directors. So gearing, 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 really, really important because mm. interest rates are going up. Companies need to refinance the same as if you're coming off a fixed loan mortgage and you go to a variable home loan mortgage, you are going to not have as much cash flow. Mm. Great, great analogy. Yeah. All right. The final thing I've got on my red flag list before we wrap this episode up is kind of the opposite of the green flag, which was a shrinking industry. And I know a lot of listeners will be familiar of the blockbuster and Netflix example, but I didn't. Are you able to share, Owen, what you would look for there? Yeah, sure. So we talked about industry growth before. And one of the really powerful things that happens, um, and I do have an image that I can share on this for Microsoft, is one of the things that great businesses do is when they have 
a strong competitive advantage in one industry is they can invest in the other industry like Tesla does, like Amazon does, um, and they don't have to risk the the ship. Like they don't have to go all hell for leather and say, this is the next thing like a Meta's currently doing. They can say, you know what? We turns out this cloud thing might be interesting. This is Amazon in the 2000s. Turns out this cloud thing might be interesting. Why don't we build something called AWS? And that turns into the biggest cloud business in the world. And it costs them really nothing because they just started it for themselves. And Microsoft did this. If you think back, if you're old enough like me, you remember the kind of the early days of Windows and they started to really do well with Windows operating system. Then they had Internet Explorer. And then they used that to then transition to things like, well, what else can we do? Can we, oh, Microsoft Office and Microsoft Excel. And then they use that and they go, well, now we can do this in the cloud and we'll start to win that market. And every time that market, their total addressable market got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, you can have that go the other way. You can think, well, if Microsoft Office was around, what was it replacing? Um, If the Internet Explorer was around, what was it replacing? And so a really good example is Blockbuster, as you mentioned, Kate. Um, Netflix obviously came in and uh, ate the, the cooking of, of Blockbuster. But, you know, there are there are many other instances and sometimes these things happen fast. As in the case of Tesla, what we're seeing now is Tesla's eating the cooking of other car companies. But sometimes it happens pretty slow as well. Like um, there are still businesses that sell uh, pamphlets and services around that when we know that emails are so effective. And, you know, I would just say this to be mindful of it. Um, and this works both ways. So this can be a red flag or a green flag. And you can make money in these types of businesses that are shrinking, in the industries that they're shrinking. But for me, as a very, I like to think of myself as a very long-term investor. Um, I tend to focus on industries. I think Warren Buffett has the line, don't try and find what's growing. Just try to find what will be around in 10 years. Mm. Uh, um, and mm. I think if you use that as like first base, you the next the next thing's a bit easier to figure out. Yeah, great examples. The other really good, um, I think it's a good example. Um, let's look. Let's compare BHP to what the coal companies, the pure coal companies, are doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. So BHP has made a conscious decision that they don't want to be um, necessarily involved in. Oh, I don't have to get it right. The ones, the 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 the, the coking coal, isn't it? Which is the one that goes? <laughs> I'm so bad. I was yeah. getting yeah. Yeah, yeah, energy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because obviously steel is is a conundrum, right? We we haven't got to green steel yet, and obviously Twiggy is, you know, and a few others are working really hard. Mister Reliance, I think, over in uh, India, is working really hard to mm. get to get that sorted. But they have made a conscious decision to move out of a market that they think is in terminal decline. In comparison, um, the major coal companies, Whitehaven, uh, New Hope, they are not, they're just paying the investors these huge wadges of cash. And I've always wondered, like, you know, yes, as the market collapses, the ones that are the lowest cost producers and the most resilient will do very well. But at some day, the tap's going to go, or the door, we're going to shut the door on that one. Well, we kind of have to, um, mm. if you accept climate science. So surely they should be investing in a different way. In the same way as BHP has said, we want to go into potash because we think food security, and that's a direct play on that, um, is a really important issue. So I think 
how companies disrupt themselves is really important. And I think the Microsoft mm. example was a great thing that how they evolved that wall garden that they have where mm. you get caught in the whole Microsoft package thing that is now a plethora of products that started with one. I also think it's really important to understand, and I think Tesla is a good example in this case, people get very caught up and they say, um, you know, Tesla's market share is 75% it's in terminal decline because it's going to go to 25%. But if the size of the market, so it's kind of the re the reverse of what you've um, asked, Kate, but it's important. If the market's increasing tenfold and you have 25% of a tenfold market, and I haven't done the maths on that, but I think you'll get the trend that I'm trying to say, you're still a company that's 10 times bigger, even though your percentage of your market share has come down because there are other entrants coming into the market. But I think companies need to accept that the business models change, they get disrupted, and the best companies that survive over time adjust. Look at what Coca-Cola has done. Coca-Cola moved into the dreadful concept of packaged water. It moved into diet drinks. It, you know, you've seen McDonald's change their business model. Mm. So a company that will survive, as to Warren Buffett, to use that expression, a company that realizes what necessarily worked you know, 10 years ago will not work in the future. And it cuts across absolutely everything. It's not just technology. It's across every sector. If you mm. look at the companies that were the big companies that, um, you know, in the 19, even, even, um, the Nifty 50 is a great example. I'll just give one example. Um, I used to make my own clothes because once upon a time clothes were very expensive because we didn't have mm. cheap production out of Asia. And Simplicity Patterns was one of the ones you used. They were in the Nifty 50 and they were on a PE multiple of 50 times. So they fall into the, the category of, whoops, wiped out by cheap clothes coming out of Asia or wherever now. Mm. And um, the other great example is obviously Kodak. Thanks for coming. <laughs> I like Kodak. Kodak, that's a very good one, Danny. Um, well, Simplicity Patterns on 50 times earning is pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> I'll, I'll get all of you to now go out to Spotlight and find your simplicity patterns. <laughs> I've never heard of them, so well, no. maybe it's because I never dive into we'll that. Have but, to ask uh, Monique when she gets back from Europe. Yes, she's the clothes uh, maker among she's, us. She's the expert there. That's really good. There's some really good examples there of uh, things going in the other direction, but also companies being able to halt it at least, like packaged water. Who would have thought, you know, um, Coca-Cola could use its distribution network to sell water, something that's, I mean, we take it for granted here in Australia, but around the world, maybe it's not as uh, fresh and clean, but um, yeah, I like it. Good stuff. Well, I think we'll have to probably listen to this episode twice because we mentioned mm. so many things, but oh, and I think we should just quickly summarize everything we mentioned in today's episode. Just run through the list of 10 quickly for everyone. Yeah, sure. So just to in, to recap the five green flags, uh, as we said, it depends. Uh, we've got solid leadership team, open communication uh, with shareholders. We, we want to look at the employee experiences and diversity. Um, what is the company's focus on the long term? So the internal focus. A growing market or industry is what we kind of like there. And then on the uh, on the red flag side of things, so or even amber flags, you know, these things where we have to maybe just hold up a moment and check on things is if a company has high staff, high staff turnover, there's been selling from directors or management teams. If the communication with investors is really poor, uh, the financials, things like debt 
uh, sales, revenue, these types of things. And finally, industry shrinking. Um, you know, it's like the old goldfish in a in a pond and the pond is getting smaller. So uh, how do they deal with that? So there's a lot to go on. If you, if you like this episode, um, I would encourage most people, if you thought a few things went over my head, just go back and listen twice. And I would encourage you to pick up uh, a copy of Danny's book, Books of Shareplicity, uh, whether you're investing in Australia and you love Aussie companies or you're investing in the US, there's a book for that too. Uh, Shareplicity, we'll put all the links in the show notes. Danny, you're also on Twitter, right? Yes, I am. Yes, yes. Yeah. I am uh, so, on Twitter. Yeah, so we'll put a link in the uh, the show notes to that if you want to uh, get in contact with Danny. But honestly, the books are great. We are giving them out at, at our event not too long ago. So uh, we'll probably do the same in Melbourne in a few weeks. Uh, and if you want to learn more, about how I go about it, you can enroll in our value investor program, which is on the RASP website. So go and check that out. Um, I think there might be a coupon floating around in the ether somewhere, but have a look and, and let us know what you think. Kate, I hope you learned something. That was a bit of fun. I, I did. I think I'm definitely listening to it again. And Danny, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Mm. Well, thank you guys so much. And thank you for the shout out. I really appreciate it. It's very, very kind. And um, I always love chatting with you both. Oh, it's our pleasure, Danny. Thank you for thank you for dialing in. All right, Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rask.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no-obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. 
You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.